The Ensemble Advice South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Ensemble Advice is not a licensed financial services provider and does not provide financial services. Before making investment decisions, you should obtain financial advice from a qualified financial advisor. I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Ensemble Advice South Africa. Today I have with me Rory Brachner. Rory, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks, Louis. You pronounce it perfectly, by the way. Thank you. I had to <laughs> practice that and uh, the Afrikaans genes are showing. Um, is that German? It is actually a German origin. My, my father's Hungarian, but randomly uh, we have a German surname. And so, yeah, there's a German background there somewhere in the family. Wonderful. And, yeah. you know, that might come through when we start talking about the precision in your technology offering. So for those listeners that are unfamiliar with Rory, he's the founder and MD at Dosh Guide. Rory, this is a very unique offering. And I want us to unpack a little bit of what led to you creating Dosh Guide, like where, where you saw a gap in the market. I know you often talk about product market fit, so I'm sure those words will, <laughs> will pop up, but share with sure. us how Dosh Guide came about. Sure. I mean, I almost don't know where to start. I mean, you know, there, there's been you know, loads of things that I've uh, been involved with that have led up to this point where I'm now launched, have launched Dosh Guide. Um, I think you know my first startup when I was in my twenties is actually some has uh, contributed to it, which is uh, I started a tutoring company when I was in college, when I was in university, uh, and it actually grew to have two hundred and fifty tutors and five full time staff. And I think one of the things that um, I, uh, that I took away from that was the the incredible power of educating people or taking somebody from a point of not really understanding something and not really feeling confident about something to a point where they get it. And and time and time again, like I was tutoring high school kids in maths. And I mean, these were kids that were, you know, really struggling and, and failing in maths. Their parents were freaked out. And there was not one kid that I didn't sit down and tutor and spend time and coach them through the parts that they were struggling where they would have these miraculous turnarounds and all it took was just this somebody to coach them through it, somebody who understood and was a subject expert uh, to sort of 
take them through that. And so that was something that really left an impression on me. And I just absolutely loved that. I'd say that definitely has played a Can part I interrupt in, in you this. There? Yes. Where, like, where was this? Were, were you in Cape Town? This was in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So this is, uh, I was ba- based in Joburg. Um, yeah, the company was called Higher Education. A mm-hmm. Terrible little like play on words, which I've, I've learned not to do for SEO reasons, if, if, uh, if not others uh, since then. Uh, but yeah, this was something that I started when I was in university, started hiring like buddies and people around me. And by the, by the end, after about sort of five years, I had, you know, 250 people. So that worked, you know, that was a, that, that was a really inspiring part of, of this journey. And I, and it was some, reflecting on it and thinking about what, where I've led to kind of made me think about that. Um, and then I think the, the next part of the, the journey about what that led to it was, after I finished with that company, I went and worked at uh, Google in London, uh, and I ended up working at Google for about nine years. Started in London, uh, moved to Singapore for about four years, and then was uh, transferred to the mothership, uh, which is San Francisco, um, for about two years. Uh, and that, you know, my, I had various roles, but my main job was like a business development guy at Google. So we had these technology products, and I would go and basically be building these businesses in various parts of the world, either sort of Europe or Asia or the US. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, um, you know, what I learned there is just the power of scaling, the power of technology, uh, and interest and keen interest in these kind of marketplace businesses. You know, my clients were like Airbnb or Uber or Booking.com. And so you can kind of see where some of these connections and some of the sort of inspiration coming from that background, coming from that technology background, uh, led me towards this platform uh, and this idea. Uh, and then I guess the, 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 you know, the final part of the story is the actual catalyst of me getting into uh, launching this company was in 2021, I was kind of winding down my career at Google and looking for something else to do. Um, and I take, I basically quit and I was, I'd taken about a year off and I was trying to figure out like, what would be the next thing to do? And I remember, you know, definitely the entrepreneur sort of startup bug was biting. Cause I remember that, you know, even though it was challenging, I enjoyed that in my twenties and my first startup. Um, and I was thinking it needs to be something scalable, something sort of technology orientated, something consumer facing. Cause I was sick of working with like B2B type of businesses, um, and I had this awful experience with a with a financial advisor um, where I got sold a product that was, you know, had like 4% fees. I'd put five years of monthly premiums into this product. And long story and many tears and many conversations uh, later, um, I decided to surrender out of that product. I burned 25% of the, the money. And it was just a huge, very difficult, um, very impactful learning for me just having wasted even the opportunity cost, you know, five years later being 25% down instead of like maybe 40 or 50% up, I was just, you know, just super angry and just disappointed in myself for not asking the right questions. Um, and I ended up, that was, I'd say the biggest catalyst. There were other factors involved, but that was the biggest catalyst for me thinking, okay, well, what is wrong with this situation how is there a person that sold me that product why did that product even exist what is this system that's created a, a place where someone like me who you know is you know i i, I think i'm like relatively well informed you know I, I, and but i just didn't ask the right questions um and and got basically suckered into 
buying a product that was just not fit for purpose and just an awful product that enriched the provider versus really providing for my needs. Um, and that that was sort of uh, 2021 and and launched and got our first set of customers last year um, and uh, and ongoing this year. I want to pause a little bit about that experience that you've had because this is a story that a lot of financial planners face. I'm they sure. probably meet a new client and they ask them sometimes, you know, what has the experience been with working with someone in our profession or industry in the past? And time and time again, it ends up in a really bad experience. Like, do you think that just makes the conversation that much easier for the new financial planner or are potential clients already on guard to say, oh, I don't want to be taken for a ride again? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, definitely most of our clients are have that background. You know, a very typical call that I will have with a client, with a new client, is I've spoken to five advisors this year. It's it, like every single one of them, I can just see they're trying to sell me some product or it just doesn't make sense or the costs are just prohibitive uh, and it just doesn't feel right, um, especially the younger clients, that's which is our target market. You know, our target market is sort of 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, like uh, wealth builders in, in inverted commas. You know, they haven't necessarily got a lot of liquid assets. Um, and, and so that profile of client is also like young and, and relatively savvy and and can kind of just, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that actually this person, the incentives aren't quite aligned, you know. So I guess, um, you know, from from our perspective, actually, a lot of our clients have had poor experiences. I think probably in, in some way it helps, uh, you know, for, for us to go, well, this is literally how it's different. Uh, and what we talk about is the incentives are the things that are causing that behavior to to not be you know going in the right place it's misaligned incentives basically um which are incentivizing advisors to push products uh or incentivizing advisors to collect assets and and neither of those are really suitable for sort of younger clients you know where they don't necessarily have assets but they still are really like keen and desperate sometimes for some great advice and could really benefit from it so um and they can afford you know a monthly premium they pay for their gym they pay for their medical aid so um you know they pay for their DSTV subscription so it's the same it's trying to get them to think about it that way really well trying to get the market to think about it that way uh, is where we get our clients um so yeah I guess um it kind of helps us but I think also the the other side of that of your question is um you know maybe it will just put a lot of people off and I think that's sort of unfortunate because. Um, you know, going back to my experience with my first startup, like it is so powerful to have somebody hand holding you and coaching you on something that you know you you can't expect it to be an expert in. You know, n- not everybody's going to be an expert or even has any interest in you know the financial industry landscape or financial product. So it's super valuable to have somebody to hand hold you through that. Um, you know, just like the same as you wouldn't operate on yourself you know if you had some sort of uh, medical condition or you wouldn't prescribe your own drugs that would be probably not the smartest thing you know um why what but we I, we see a lot of people kind of doing that themselves um buying random products or investing in shares or things like that 
without much knowledge of the market and without much knowledge of you know how to allocate assets and do all the the, the stuff that a, a really a proper well qualified financial advisor or planner will would run through so i guess it's kind of um it's it's it sucks that you know the industry has gotten to a stage where it, it's kind of put off so many people that they especially younger people they wouldn't even consider getting a financial you know advisor because actually the right kind of financial advisor can just have such a huge impact and because of compounding returns like doing it and getting the things right in your 20s is just such a, a powerful you know thing to to start you on the right course in your financial life Rory this this is something that I think is so topical and so important for us to figure out how do we align incentives with our clients like is it sure. something that we can do so so tell me a little bit more so now you've had this unfortunate experience which I guess is part of life's lessons yeah. of school, what to school look out fees for. I call it school fees basically <laughs> you paid some school fees yeah. and it sounds like it wasn't the right person which led to the wrong product linked to you right was that was that a correct assumption yeah you know like this was this was a guy that i was based in singapore at the time and this was like a guy that was referred to me by a friend and he was this okay. uh my friend was like really impressed with him and my friend by the way worked in technology super smart guy and he said yeah this guy's great you should go and you need to like figure out what to do with your money that you're just piling up in your in your bank account that's dumb like you should go do something with that and i'm like yeah this is you know i, I should go do something with it and I sat down with this guy and he was this like friendly Scottish guy and he had all sorts of stories about, you know, how he was, you know, independently wealthy and he was just doing this just, you know, out of the goodness of his heart because he just wanted other people to like benefits and, 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 you know, thinking back, it's just, it was all just BS basically, you know, like, I don't know if he understood that it was BS. I don't know if it was malicious or if it was his just like well-intentioned sales pitch to kind of just get people to be comfortable with his level of expertise and his intentions i honestly don't know i can't i'm not i can't get in his head but he's either malicious he was either malicious or he was just and it just not very smart and just was selling products and pushing products that were just awful and i think you know uh, yeah clearly once i started asking the right questions clearly he wasn't the right person you know clearly this was not somebody that was that actually understood what it was that he was selling um, uh, or understood it and was like, oh, well, I'm just going to make some money anyways and just get some commission out of this. Um, but really, at the end of the day, looking back, he got a big commission payment up front when he got me to sign up to that monthly um, premium. And then at some point, like in the three years, in the five-year period, I think three years in, he he convinced me over a beer to top it up, to increase the monthly premium. And that part I look back at quite sourly because, because you know, he then took another little commission check out of that, you know, um, and and none of that was to my benefit. I had to surrender out of that and burn 25% of that money. So, yeah, clearly, clearly in hindsight, this was not the right person. Do you think your your acceptance of what happened or your at least the emotional response around it, if you, let's say you paid an hourly fee for this and you ended up with the same product do you think your emotional responses would have been similar or do you think that would have been different purely based because the ink the payment actually then came from you even though the outcome was maybe the same yeah so that i think that's a super interesting question because that gets to the heart of what i'm trying to figure out and 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 i guess explore with this dosh guides mission that i'm on 
which is, you know, the, the fee model or the, let's call it the incentives, how much impact does that have on the behavior of an industry? Um, and it's an, it's a question, you know, I don't know exactly the answer, but I'm very curious about that question because my, my sort of thesis or my sort of hunch is that, 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 um, you know, it has a big impact. Incentives drive human behavior, you know? I think there's that there's a Charlie Munger quote that says, "Show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome." You know, and he he's always talked about just how he's been throughout his career. Charlie Munger, by the way, is uh, vice president of Berkshire Hathaway, so you know, one of the most I think it's like the seventh largest company in the world, and super successful. And he's the right hand man of uh, Warren Buffett, um, and he you know he always talks obsessively about incentives and how everything he's looked at it and all the systems and setting up the company to operate in the right way is all about incentives. Um, and I think like people often believe that they are above the incentives of the system that they're in, you know, that, oh, I, you know, I would, I know that there's like, you know, I often talk to advisors and they go, I know that in theory, there is a, a sort of conflict of interest there because you know, if I've got a bunch of assets and I'm charging AUM, I'm going to be less inclined or biased towards you removing those assets from my from the portfolio. To I'm not going to necessarily I'm biased against that. You know, and I think I think people trust their ability to rise above that too much. You know, like uh, just in general, and not just with advisors, it's with everybody. You know, um, because I think. Individual advisors would always go, yes, I, you know, I always do the right thing for my clients. But in aggregate, like, look where the industry is and look what the levels of trust are in the financial advisor. Like, financial advisor is is like a tainted term. Like, it sits on this on the same sort of trust level as like a used car salesman. Like, there's some studies that actually show that, you know, and that's. That's it's so unfortunate. That's an awful place for a profession to be, you know. Uh, and I guess the level of trust you can debate, but I think the, you know, there is a there is an issue there. You know, there's a big trust issue. And my, uh, you know, my thesis is that a big part of that is is that in aggregate, like, you know, incentives drive behavior. And if your incentives, if an industry's incentives, are, you know, to push uh, to get uh, to pay a commission for selling products. That is what the industry will do, regardless of what's good for the client. And we've seen this time and time again. I think the commission question is 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 answered. I think you know a lot of the like um, regulatory stuff in other countries and in South Africa is moving away from that. So that is answered. There's no really debate about that. But the next step is 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 on AUM. I think AUM actually works super well. Um, for wealthy clients, I think it aligns incentives. If you've got a bunch of liquid assets, it al- actually aligns incentives, and you and the advisors kind of incentivized to grow that. So I think there is some alignment, uh, and I think AUM is going to stick around for decades. I don't think that industry is un- under any risk. I think it's it's a great model for certain t- profiles of clients, uh, but I think like younger clients are just on mass just rejecting that model. You know, uh, these clients are kind of used to subscriptions and platforms and ratings and reviews like they don't book a hotel unless they've seen you know a hundred reviews that there's a this this kind of hotel 
And so, you know, it just, none of it really falls into the category of the way that the sort of, I guess, traditional approach to financial advice works. Um, and so I think, you know, that profile of clients is asking, you know, questions and kind of moving in a different direction. Before we get to the, the matching of potential clients to advisors and how that makes sense, I want to talk about setting ourselves up to almost withstand the temptation of incentive. Like what are the rules that you're seeing advisors or practices follow that set them up to be potentially more aligned or at least a little bit more immune against this temptation? Because, you know, as you rightly say, these when you look at the incentives, you can almost predict and you can guess what will follow. Sure. Yet a lot of the times I speak to a lot of young financial planners, you know, even within our business, we've had this discussion the the employer is also incentivized to make sure that you don't ask too uncomfortable questions and and I don't want to say brainwash that's maybe too far but you know get you so passionate around what you're delivering that in your financial advisor's defense like maybe he wasn't aware of the impact so yeah tell me what are those rules that you think can set us up to be a little bit more immune against incentives or or how do we prohibit this yeah and i think it's a great point like you know just the first part of that question just around that like sometimes the advisors and and the, and the companies kind of uh, you know drinking the kool-aid is the is the term that that comes yeah. in like um there was the there was a great um documentary recently about um what's that the, the company that does oxy cotton mm-hmm. and how the they they had these sales meetings where they basically tell the salespeople like this is a you know this oxy cotton content is is this miraculous drug that's going to change pain management and you're going to help people you know you're going to help millions of people and they 100% would go to the doctors with that belief uh, very much in their heads obviously in hindsight we've now all learned that that is an, that was just an off day basically started the sort of oxycontin sort of opiate crisis in America and were literally responsible for the deaths of millions of people um but i think that speaks to the point of like a lot of those sales reps in that show, they weren't necessarily aware. I think they started becoming aware later on in the episodes, but they weren't necessarily aware at the beginning. They were like, honestly, believing what the sales managers and what the like the product managers were telling them, you know. And I think it's the same for um, um, for the sort of the, the financial side of things uh, or the financial advice uh, industry. Yeah, those uh, cigarette salesmen <laughs> come yeah. to mind, the Marlboro man. Um, yeah, exactly. Yes, like there might be some benefit, but there's also dire consequences of, of you know, the advice or the sales that, that you've yeah. made. And if you've overdone it and you've kind of taken something and pushed it into, you know, I, I mean, op- opiates are probably really useful for certain people to help with medication, but not for like everybody you know and because of greed and because you know that that family the Sackler family started you know just going crazy and pushing it to everybody um and it was just super irresponsible and i think that's a great metaphor for you know financial products it's there's certain things that are not meant for everybody and there's a certain level of responsibility to to make to set up the incentives for your sales people i guess or your frontline sort of customer facing people that removes as much um, kind of, you know, skewed incentives or, or, or tries to discourage bad behavior. And I'm not saying, I don't think that it, you, you can ever have a perfect system, right? I, I don't think that y- you might always get a bad act, bad actors, 
But I think that the incentive set up in the right way can set it up that most people operate in the right way rather than the the the, the opposite, which is most people operating against the interests of clients, which is not what you want. Um, so I think like, you know, to your original part of your question is like, you know, what do we think about, like, how do we put, you know, the right incentives in place? I mean, if you look at, if you go to, you know, our website and you, and you look at what we're up to, we're very much like a fee-based approach, you know, so there's a complete disconnection from products. Um, there's a complete disconnection from the sale or the push of product or the collecting of assets. Like we operate, we've got three tiers, a, a low a low complexity tier, mid complexity and high complexity. And depending on the complexity of the clients, you know, if they're starting out, they're low complexity. If they've got a family, maybe they're mid complexity. If they're a bit more high net worth, they're high complexity. That's a very rough description of what, what it is. But you you slot into one of those three tiers and you pay a monthly subscription just like you would pay your DSTV or your personal trainer and you get access to an advisor, a CFP qualified advisor, as much or as little as you need. You know, like obviously at the beginning, obviously it might be quite a lot, many meetings a month, and then it will sort of um, get into more of a maintenance thing. But then if something in life happens, you know, a year or like a divorce or a, a starting a family or moving overseas, then that will ramp up again and you might, you know, use them more frequently. But they're sort of on call and there, and there's an ongoing annual engagement with them after that first initial kind of building out a financial plan and, and all the good stuff that I think everybody listening to your your podcast would know about, you know, like holistic, great sort of financial advice. But I think that the difference with, uh, you know, fee-based and we're like a subcategory of fee-based, which is specifically a subscription-based approach, is that you are removing any of that conflict of interest and you are removing any of the the sort of the push towards behaving not in the interest of your clients or the pull, let's say, towards behaving not in the interest of your client. Um, and so that that actually, um, I think, is super important. Um, and it's something that we're obviously, um, you know, aiming. Our goal is to accelerate the adoption of fee-based um, in South Africa. And But we don't think that not all fee-based, fee, are, are born equal, you know, like you get lots of different categories under the, the, the category of fee-based, you get like an hourly, you know, where you just charge an hourly ad hoc rate, you would get like project-based and then you get uh, subscription-based. Those I'd say are the, roughly the three categories. And, you know, for whatever reason, um, you know, in the category of fee-based financial advisors, um, the uh, like hourly is never really taken off at scale, right? You do have people who charge hourly, but it's never really been a big thing. Uh, and the same thing with like project base, where you charge, you know, ten thousand or twenty thousand or five thousand for a, a financial plan once off, and then it's done. Um, that is not really, I don't think, necessarily scaled. It, I don't think it's a huge part of the industry, uh, but I still think that fee base is important. And so the experiment here is like, let's try out a subscription-based approach and see if that's something that will get us closer to product market fit and get us closer to meeting that need of, you know, that particular profile of client who is really looking for, you know, unbiased, unconflicted advice. Um, so that's that's sort of the approach with, uh, with Dosh, Dosh Guide. I like how you've simplified and just given someone a different option. Right, because when yep. you were looking for a financial planner, yes, you might they might have been around, but 
you know, the ones that you had in mind was, okay, I engage, I see what's to offer, and then I need to judge, is this a good fit or not? I want to flip it around a bit to say, how do we protect the advisors and the financial planners from being abused by clients that might, you know, opt in for subscription and just try and milk as much as possible? Is that happening? Or, you know, is it just my irrational fear of giving away too much? Because, you know, oftentimes when we speak to someone that may be working for commission, he has to or she has to speak to five or six clients and potentially, you know, one out of them take a product. So I, I understand the mathematics behind that. Yet if you have a subscription model where I think essentially where the communication is unlimited, how difficult is it to set those boundaries to say, well, actually, this is not, we need to go and revisit uh, that. Is is this a conversation that's come up before? Sure, yeah. And it's a good good question that definitely would be a concern about from advisors that are looking to diversify into this, into this category, right? Um, so I think like, the magic number in in terms of like painting a picture of what it looks like a, like a fee a subscription based advisor business model what does that look like because i think that would answer your question mm-hmm. and the magic number seems to be about 100 like 100 clients right that that's not that's an ideal amount i mean some could do a little bit more some could do less if you have really amazing platforms and systems um, and there's some great examples out of the us by the way people should check out um, facet wealth they're a great example of this model really like just absolutely exploding. That business is, I think they got $100 million of funding last year, just absolutely growing hugely, double their client base uh, in 2022. So that's a good, you know, the subscription-based approach is not like, I didn't invent it. Like I, it's, 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 it's not like I've come up with this approach. It's a, the thesis and the, as there are proof points and comparables in other markets where actually people are really responding very well and and adopting it that particular especially that profile of client right and so where was i going on this remind me Louis. hey we were talking about how do we create the the framework at least for people not to abuse the system so now you're paying a subscription i'm thinking my netflix subscription i can watch as much as possible right, yeah, and with yes the advisors, maybe it has yeah. a bit of a drain on the servers and how much you yeah. know, they need to pay for storage. But other than that, I'm not taking up a professional's time. And so I'm, I'm yeah. trying to figure out how do we create those um, boundaries, I guess, yeah. between advisors and clients. Exactly. And so, yeah, so I guess, you know, painting the picture of what the model looks like is getting towards answering that question, which is, mm. yeah, you have 100 clients, let's say, for argument's sake, might be more, might be less. But in that, gr- in that, that group of clients, um, there's always going to be like, a, a portion of clients who are starting out, right? Of the 100, 100 clients, say there will be 20 or 30, I'm just making up numbers here, that will be at that early stage, which is, like, you know, the process is top-loaded or front-loaded. Mm-hmm. You know, you are going to do more work and there's been much more touch points early on with the engagement of the uh, with the client rather than like six months or a year in uh, where it becomes more of a maintenance thing. Uh, and then there'll be a portion of clients like the the sort of the the midsection of clients, I guess the torso. Let's let's call it who are more shifted towards a, a maintenance uh, you know level. Let's say six months a year in, um, and then there'll be a portion that are just very high maintenance. They've gotten so comfortable, and you've gotten them to a stage that they are just so on top of it, and it's just like a maybe you only see them twice a year, you know. But when things do happen, maybe you need to see them a bit more. So I get, I think. 
the, the model works because, um, you know, you have that distribution of clients, a, a percentage that will be top loaded or front loaded, a percentage that will be more mid sort of torso, just a, a regular amount of maintenance and touch points. And then a percentage that will be very low touch um, uh, and actually really easy. Um, and so it sort of sp- it sort of spreads itself out. Um, and, you know, the other thing that we see with our clients is that they don't want to speak to us like every month. That, that, that's not what they're not interested. Of course, when they're first engaging and you're trying to figure them out and get the foundation in place, there's going to be, it, it behooves the, 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 the advisor to kind of get the right information and get the good, a good foundational uh, amount of information. And, you know, that's, that's going to take some time. But certainly, like, I don't think any of the clients, uh, actually very few of them want to be constantly every week, every month talking to the advisor. In fact, they are very happy to shift into, uh, you know, maybe touching every touching base every month or every two months. And actually, some of them will move to, you know, only speaking to the advisor twice a year. It strikes me that some of this is not too dissimilar of the assets under management model where you still have this cross subsidization to say some of the clients that are using more are paying or the clients that use less are paying for the ones that use more and hopefully over time it balances out. I do want to challenge the the concern that I have around selling time. Like how do you then position as an advisor the value offering? You know, you're paying the subscription, but if it's not linked to time, what you know what else is there? Yeah, exactly. I think you know, and that's that's definitely like trying to figure out you know how to continuously add value is is a is a key thing. Um, I'd say like the one thing just to mention even before going into that is that you know the subscription also is flexible. Like it's not like somebody has is signed up for life. You know, if they're not if they don't feel they're getting value, they stop paying. You know, so actually mm. there is. Um, a uh, there is a bit of a uh, I guess one of the challenges of operating on a subscription basis is you have to figure out a way where you are continuously adding value and the client feels like you know they are continuously getting value and they don't feel bad about that you know a thousand rand a month or whatever they spend on on the subscription um, and so that is something that you know each advisor on our platform has to sort of figure out and people have different approaches. But there are some sort of themes, you know, and I think the um, one of the themes is like, you know, like I like to think about the financial needs pyramid. If you Google financial needs pyramid, like you've got these, the hierarchy of needs uh, and there's loads of different versions. But the, the one that sort of the one that sort of sticks out of my head is that at the bottom of that pyramid of needs for, for clients in terms of their financial needs is like what you'd call maybe like the fundamentals, you know, like wealth protection is like the description there. And it's stuff that is pretty fundamental, like setting a budget and like being accountable to that budget, um, you know, building an emergency fund, managing your debt, not getting too crazy on the credit cards and not getting too deep into debt where it gets unmanageable. Um, you know, even just figuring out your relationship with money, like why is it that I behave in certain ways with money? A lot of that sort of foundational, basic sort of stuff is sort of at the, at the bottom of that that pyramid, um, and it's also you could also define that as sort of coaching because there's an accountability portion to it. It's like you need to be checking in because you're trying to change people's behavior. It's like the human side of of financial planning, right? 
And then the next up, that's the one, that's the kind of the base. And I think that if you don't have that right, honestly, you're, you're kind of in trouble. Like if you, if you as a client haven't got some of that basic stuff right, you're, you're a little bit in trouble. Uh, and the second part is like the sort of planning, right? Um, where it's like now you're looking at products, you're looking at like um, risk mitigation uh, and, and those related products. You're looking at investment products, retirement products, and then you might be purchasing and deciding what to, what to buy. And then at the top, of the, you know, the, the, of the, the pyramid, you've got the more advanced stuff like the optimizing, like tax stuff and estate planning and, and maybe some trusts. And it gets a bit more complicated, but it's not, you know, it's not as necessary as the stuff, as the foundational stuff at the, at the bottom. And I think like to answer your question, like a good advisor, because they are touching all those points of the pyramid, there's like a continuous level of value that they can provide um, because a lot of like uh, advisors that are not incentivized in the right way, let's say, um, will focus on the middle part of the pyramid without going into the basics, you know, because that's how they get paid. That's how they, you know, pay, feed their family and, you know, uh, pay their mortgage and stuff. They can't, they have to like keep doing the middle part, which is selling financial products and moving financial products and collecting assets. And unfortunately, even though they may want to, they don't get to spend time on the more foundational stuff, which is like the financial coaching stuff and the making sure you're building up an emergency fund. And in three months time, checking in, like, how are we doing on that emergency fund? Okay, why is it not growing at the rate that it should be? Let's look at that. Let's reassess that. So there's a great like accountability around it. And it's not just, uh, you know, I always say like, you know, building a financial plan is great, but like basically what people often do is they, they take the financial plan, they go, cool, and then they don't look at it for about two years. But, you know, when you have that continuous engagement, you're, look, you're, you're referring back to that plan and you're, and you're setting up goals and there's an accountability around it and a coaching element of it that moves people to, towards not just having a great plan, but executing against that plan. And honestly, I think that's where the magic happens. And that's where the value can be created, where, where somebody will go, man, I don't mind spending that, month, that money every month because I can see like, that I, I, don't, I didn't just have a great plan, but I've executed against that plan. And I've got a meeting with Louis in like six months and he's going to like give me hell if, uh, you know, not really, but he's going to, yeah, I'm not going to feel great if we are not, if I'm not hitting some of the targets that we've set out, I've not changed some of the behavior and I'm not building up my emergency fund. So I think um, that's a good way to think about um, how to continuously add value. I love that. And it's like in- aligning the incentives, but also having someone that's got your back. I remember uh, a few years ago, there was a, well, they, they're still operating a US-based business called LearnVest. And sure. they had this analogy of kind of a personal trainer. You'd pay a monthly subscription. They had boot camps that you can join in on, like fitness classes for your finance, group sessions. And they really had to get to scale. And unfortunately, they were then bought over, I think, by one of the product providers. And so we're seeing that over and over again. Businesses that have figured out how to scale advice end up being acquired by product houses to just link it back to a product ultimately because oftentimes these businesses don't generate enough revenue to cover their expenses like do you think that with smaller practices this is a sustainable model or is it something where hey we're trying to figure out what's a balance to actually serve these clients because i'm i'm wondering 
for most financial planners, is it profitable to service clients in this phase? Or, you know, I'm throwing ideas around, or will this be serviced by robo-advisors or the banks in digital channels? I'd sure. love to hear your take. I know that yeah. is a very vague question, but no, no, share with it. me what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I think that there is a, a you know a value to be had from um, from from approaching it um, this way. Maybe if you could just because I, I I feel that there's something good there. But if you could just rephrase just, just so I can because there's there's definitely a good answer in there. I just want to make sure I'm getting it. Yeah, if if we can talk about the sustainability of this model, right? right? Mm-hmm. We're seeing businesses being acquired by product houses because I feel like a lot of them are not sustainable and they fix it by saying, uh, oh, now we have a product linked to it, right? Which goes back to your initial problem around incentives. So right. is there something that we can fix? Is this sustainable enough or will time tell? Right. And, and I guess the question is also around like, does it even make sense for advisors to be trying to service this segment of the market is, is where I was kind of going also. So I guess, you know, I mean, we believe, yeah, we believe, yes, we believe that there is an ability to service. And actually, I think that, you know, if, again, if the, the comparable is that company in the US called Facet Wealth, um, that, you know, people believe that model so much that they've been given $165 million to grow, right? And they've, and they've doubled their client base to 12,000 clients in the last year. So clearly, you know, and, and it's the same, it is a model, it's basically low cost in U.S. terms, U.S. dollar terms, low-cost subscription-based access to a CFP. That's basically the business model. But they also have a platform, you know, which helps to um, helps people to sort of um, engage with 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 clients, or helps advisors to scale up. So I think the platform part is important and helps an advisor to instead of just doing a hundred because it's more efficient, they can do a hundred and fifty or two hundred clients, right? Um, and so uh, there is you know, proof points of this model definitely working. Um, but it is, it's a very different approach. And I think if you're, if you're very much in an AUM mindset, um, it's quite difficult to get your head around, well, how is this going to be sustainable? But I would say like, you know, even just do the simple calculations, you know, let's say you can, uh, even at like 500 rand a month, um, let's say, if you've got 100 clients or like 150 clients, that's 75,000 rand a month. So if you if you can get a, a a planner, a relatively junior planner, to do a great job with a hundred to hundred and fifty clients, you can you can basically get seventy five thousand rand a month out of that. And if you have ten of those, you know, do the maths. Um, the challenge obviously will be be able to scale that out and to have pods of advisors, and then you, your clients would graduate from five hundred to seven hundred to nine hundred to a thousand. And they would move up to more senior level ad- advisors who are maybe charging one and a half thousand a month. Um, and you can do the maths on that also. You know, one and a half thousand a month, a hundred clients, hundred and fifty clients. Yeah, it can be. It can be actually super profitable and very sustainable. And you know, the great thing from the advisors that work on our platform is that because they've been freed up from having to push products and collect assets, they're doing the work that whole pyramids. You know, they're doing the work that they they were set out to do the reason why they went into this profession in the first place to help their clients and they don't feel this need anymore to kind of push products and so they actually really really love it and it is you know it is sustainable i love how passionate you are about this and i agree with you there definitely is a space 
it's interesting to see it change and evolve. And I'm wondering the the advisors that are on your panel and listed, do they then refer out to a product specialist to implement the product or do they implement themselves? And if they do, you know, from an insurance perspective, what happens to the commission? Is it then okay for them to then earn that commission? Yeah. That's a great question. And I actually meant to answer that earlier on, like, because um, I wanted to make sure that people understood this. Uh, so 100%, like, our advisors can uh, advise on products. Um, they can, you know, and that's, you know, that's if a product's needed. Sometimes a client has a great product and there's no need to change it, you know. And so, and, and with them, they have no compulsion to change a product if they think it's a good fit and it's low the costs are low and it's a, a good reputable provider they're going to go they're going to say great you know use that product no problem uh, which is actually, which is quite unique i'm sure you'd understand in the financial advisor space but if if let's you know and there's a big assumption i think it's a, a it's a it's a problem in the industry that there's always an assumption that we need a product sometimes especially younger clients they don't need a product they've got a work pension scheme they don't need life insurance at this stage they've got no dependents it's fine. Just keep putting into maybe increase the the contributions to your pension scheme. Let's get a bit of an emergency fund set up. Let's. You, you said you want to invest in some shares. We can dabble in that. Let's figure out what is an appropriate level to to do that. We can help you to do that. But but you know it's not necessarily needing to sell like a whole new product, right? And I think. But to your question, if a product is needed. Um, then 100%, uh, our, our advisors can uh, do help with products and they can help with the implementation if that's what you want. And they are only they only point people towards zero commission products. Um, so th- any of the products that they they would select, it would it, it has to be either a zero commission product, like either a DIY product the client would sign up themselves and they just point them in that direction, um, or if it is a platform. Um, that the advisor uses, it has to have an option where you zero the commission out. There can be no commission. That's a, that's pretty much the most important rule on our platform. Uh, and then also on that's just not on the investment on the risk side of things. Um, people don't seem to know this, but like um, you know, especially consumers. But you a load of the platforms you can zero out the commission on on the the risk products, so life insurance, disability cover, uh, and often when you zero out the commission. You get about a so far we've seen about a twenty percent saving for the client. So that's another thing that we tell our clients: like, yes, this costs you eight hundred rand a month or a thousand rand a month, but your life insurance for your family, we're going to save you twenty, thirty. We've seen up to sort of forty, fifty percent saving, and so you you're already starting to make some of that money back just because we're helping you to make the right decisions. Rory, I I want to add that what we see in our business, especially with older clients, is. Because often the insurance was never reduced, they end up in a position where they're so overinsured. So right. we actually cancel more insurance than what we sell. And, you know, it's really a function of the clients in the in the practice. And how and I think that, I think to that set, points towards, like, mm. it's such a great example. So I interrupt because I think it's just such a great example of the wrong incentives. Like, mm. like you know, the, the people who sold that insurance product, they should be checking in and reducing that insurance product. But why would they, you know, like they've already like sold, they've earned the commission and they've moved on, you know. Uh, and this is, I think, a perfect example where, where it's it's not necessarily like outwardly malicious, but it's just not incentivized to behave in the right way. And that's to the detriment of clients. Yeah, just like you're not incentivized to cancel cell phone insurance contracts if you're not, you know, you might not even have a, have that cell phone. We 
we had a client that were paying three cell phone contracts and she had one cell right. phone. So, okay, well, what's these other two? No, she can't remember what they're It's like, for. I don't know why I so have those. Yeah. The, the same thing happens. And I think if you, if you follow the trail back, for me, a big part of this is remunerating advisors at least the bulk of their income from a salary perspective. Then you're trying to do that. What you've said is, hey, let's try and mix that to the actual end advisor, you know, being paid by the client. Or you could do it through the firm where they then facilitate it and figuring out that balance. As we wrap up this conversation, for advisors that are interested to learn a little bit more or clients that want to find out, like, where should they head? Yeah, sure. They can just you know, email me, uh, Rory at doshguide.co. So it's R-O-R-Y at doshguide, D-O-S-H-G-U-I-D-E dot C-O. Or just go to our website, doshguide.co and get in touch with me and, and have a chat. You know, like I love chatting to financial advisors and hearing, especially the ones that are sort of interested in diversifying um, outside of, you know, their current business model and looking at diversifying into a fee-based approach, specifically a subscription fee-based approach is what we support. And so the way to think about us is like, if you are an advisor, and we, and by the way, if you have an existing AM business, all power to you. I actually have, if, contrary to maybe some of the sentiments on this talk now, like I have nothing against AUM and AUM advisors. I think it's a great model. I think it works great for certain types of clients. And so, but if you are interested you know, in diversifying and not basically putting all your eggs in the AUM basket and having some eggs at least in the sort of subscription-based or fee-based basket, then our platform is there to support you, connect you with a network of like-minded advisors who are also trying to make that transition. It's not easy. It's a difficult transition to make. Uh, It requires, you know, lots of business retooling, process retooling, uh, the way you engage with clients from you know, sales calls to ongoing engagement, everything shifts, right? And it's not an easy thing, but that's what we're here to do. We're here to support those advisors who want to look at making that transition and sort of um, capture, you know, a younger market, I guess, um, then uh, and have access to a younger market who are kind of thinking in this way, then that's that's what we're here to do and, and ultimately also provide you with a, uh, a, you know, a pipeline of leads you know, subscription-based lead that you can start chatting to. Rory, I want to echo what you said around rethinking your value, retooling. And we saw that when we started charging for our financial plans. Now we had to defend the value that we're offering, not, you know, defending the end product, but, you know, often clients would say, okay, but what do I actually get? (laughs) And so we had to really figure out how do you convey the service into something that's valuable and that someone can equate to say, okay, I'm willing to pay this fee for what I can expect to get. And uh, I wish you all the best with building this platform. I really hope that in the future we can look back and say, great, this is a growing part because for us to service the growing population and a part of our population that might not have access to financial advisors, I really believe that this might be a sustainable model. And I want to thank you for for taking the risk and building this. I wish you all the best. Awesome, Lee. Well, great chatting to you. Thanks so much for all the great questions and, and for doing what you do. 